turn with me to Genesis chapter 21. We're going to begin there, but our primary text today is Genesis chapter 22. And I want to ask you a question. What kind of test taker are you? Now, I'm not talking about scholastic tests, although I think that that's where many of our minds go. Uh, Like, I'm a terrible test taker. Uh, I am not a patient patient when it comes to medical testing. And so just real quick, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I had let everybody know that I was going in for kind of my, my uh, every three-year checkup on uh, cancer screenings, cancer-free. Everything's clear. I'm, I'm grateful to God for that. <clears throat> I don't want to leave that open-ended. I don't want to leave that open-ended, although like the illustrations I could keep getting out of it seem very tempting to me to just leave it open-ended, but no, I'm not going to do that. That, It's cancer-free, but uh, I've been going through some medical tests, and that's a test that might be coming to mind, and and there may be those here today that are waiting on test results. Uh, There's blood work that gets drawn, there's there's ultrasounds that happen, there are scans and all kinds of different things that happen, and so while I am cancer-free, there are some additional tests that the doctors want to run on me. And everything's fine. It's apparently based on my age. It feels like mileage on a car when you go to get your oil changed. And they're like, based on your mileage, we recommend this. So I feel like that's where I'm at in life. Based on my mileage, doctors are recommending a couple of other tests. And one of them is, is with an ENT. Uh, I've been losing my voice a bit uh, in speaking, and that's not a common thing for me. So uh, they, they're recommending a test and uh, some, some vocal therapy, and we, we know some great friends that do that type of work, and so they're going to be working with me on some very simple adjustments to make to be able to just keep my voice. Uh, that's very important uh, to me, anyway. Um, my kids might have a different perspective, but I'm not asking right now. So they, they were wanting to send me to a test for an ENT, and they, they said, based on mileage, let's go ahead and move your colonoscopy up, you know, which sounds wonderful, right? Um, so I had a couple of doctor's offices calling me saying, hey, let's set up an appointment, blah, blah, blah. And so I walked into an appointment just a few days ago, and I I had a funny moment because, you know, with protocols being how they are, I really was not in the office. I kind of walked through the office and directly to the room. I, I had to log in on the app and some different things. It is amazing some of the advances that have happened uh, over the last year and a half. And so I sat in my car until they told me I didn't have to sit in my car anymore. And then I went directly to the examination room. So I, I have all of these doctors kind of calling in, a, a GI doctor and a ENT and all this kind of stuff. And I walk into the room and the nurse says to me, okay, let's prep you for your scope. And, you know, in that moment, I don't know. So apparently I have a hard time keeping what I'm thinking off of my face. It would probably save me like 99% of what happens in conflict between Stephanie and I if I, if I gained some self-control over just this region of myself. Um, but apparently my eyes sent a very confused and kind of consternated look across the top of my mask. And, and I just said, what kind of doctor is this? Because when she said, let's prep you for your scope, I'm thinking I'm at a GI doctor. And I realized, I'm not ready for that. So without getting into the details, most of us know what the 24 hours before a colonoscopy are. They are like the sixth level of hell from what I've understood, gastrointestinally. And so I, I just was like, I'm not ready for that. And I said, what kind of doctor is this? And the nurse looked back at me and must have read my face in that moment and realized, you have no idea where you are. And she said, this is an ENT. I said, oh, good. I'm sorry. I thought it was a GI doctor, and I wasn't ready for that. And then she said, she goes, oh, honey, no. So ENT is up here, and GI is down here. And I thought, I've given them something to laugh at for a month. I'm that patient that realized, like, we're we're working on the other end of you today. And so I'm not a great test taker. And and maybe there's funny tests like that that happen in life. And they they did the ENT, the the scope and all. It was delightful. And there are funny tests that happen. And then there are the... Small tests that happen in between. But let me ask the question again. What type of test taker are you? When you're getting ready for a test, when you're, when you're preparing for a test, are you the one that didn't prepare? You're just going to kind of wing it? Are you the one that uh, 
every thought of a test just makes you anxious in this new and, and terrible way? Are you one that is like so studied, you could have been teaching the materials all, alone, all along? Are you the one that crams the night before, or have you developed a very refined system for cheating? What kind of test taker are you? It's funny to think about ENT versus GI. It's interesting to think back on our elementary, middle, high school, college days and what kind of test taker you are. But it gets very serious when you talk about a test of your faith. It gets very personal in those moments because there's a history to it. There's time that's gone into that. There's, there is story and testimony. There's promise and hopes and desires. There's talents and abilities. There's character development. All of these things go into the test of our faith. And so today, the question I really want to pose to you is, how do you face tests of your faith? How do you respond when those moments come up? I'm grateful to Aaron and to Shane for their preaching over the last couple of weeks, and and we're going to be kind of closing out a section on Abraham this week, and as we look at Genesis chapter 21 together, I just want to remind us a bit of some of the context of where we're at in the book of Genesis. See, over the last couple of weeks, we've realized that for years, Abraham, he believed in God's promise that he would have many descendants. That was a part of God's covenant with him, that he would become a great nation and that through him all the peoples of the earth would be blessed and even through his lineage and his descendants the generations that would come after him god god in his promise carries him through trials and tribulations things that he faces even if abram or abraham tried to take control of the process himself we're going to see a little bit more about that next week and how it is that we try to take control of the promises of God at times, even outside. We've got to learn how to stay in our lane as his children. We're going to see that a little bit more next week. But as a sign of God's promise, God changed Abram's name from Abram to Abraham, and Abraham's faith in God remained in this unwavering way over the course of his years. Then there was a day that came. There was a day that came that Abraham's faith was turned into sight at the birth of his son from Sarah. Let's, let's read together Genesis chapter 21, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised, and Sarah con- conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. At the time which God had spoken to him, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? And we recognize that what we're reading about here is this son of promise that has come to Abraham. This this one who will continue the line of promise that we read about back in Genesis chapter 3 in verse 15. That there there was a line of one who was going to come who would actually bruise his heel in crushing the head of the serpent. The one who had been a part of the fall. And so God has, uh, Abraham has lived many long years experiencing the benefit of God's faithfulness. And in spite of some of the moments where he tried to take control, where he was unfaithful and made choices that were not faithful to the promise that God had made to him, the Lord fulfilled his promise anyway. In spite of his own sinfulness, in spite of his own dysfunction, the Lord fulfilled his promise. And Isaac is born. Nothing is impossible with God. It's important for us to realize that this morning, that nothing is impossible to God. 
See, the birth of the son of promise to Abraham and to Sarah in their old age proves this to us. God kept his promise in a miraculous way. He intervened in creation, in history, on behalf of his promises. He steps in and proves that nothing is outside of his lordship. Nothing is outside of his control. But we realize this. What we're reading about here in A Son of Promise is not just about Isaac and neat things that we can look at in genealogies throughout Scripture. This is the Son, this is the son of Promise who is going to bring the greater promise in the birth of Jesus. There's a degree to which this is a Christmas text for us this morning. As, as we're preparing to go into the holiday season, our office has already kind of shifted into, into Christmas mode. We had a, a staff meeting as we were kind of reviewing the last few weeks and the church picnic that we had. That was such a fun time together last week. Thank you, by the way, too, just not just for the fellowship. Uh, I was heading out at one point, and there was still just this gathering of people on the field. And I just remember thinking, I, I was just overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude just seeing you there fellowshipping together. And it was just wonderful, and I just remember saying, thank God for this church. But as, even as we were gathered this week, I brought in some Christmas decor from my office to try to kind of lighten the mood and help us realize, but this is a Christmas text this morning. It's not just talking about the fulfillment of the promise in Abraham so that we can have neat stories to tell each other about. Remember what God was like. It's actually pointing to what God is like even today and so in being a christmas story we're not just kind of making this neat cohesive uh, timeline in history where god was redeeming his people we're realizing that god is still about that work today and he does that through the son of promise we see that historically through isaac we realize that through jesus christ that is the son of promise who is coming he would become a sacrifice to save us from our sins. So I, let me ask this question just at the outset. Not just what kind of test taker are you, but let's kind of begin to evaluate how it is that we can build ourselves into being those who are taking a faith-filled test of our faith. If we think about God's faithfulness to his promises. If we see this in scripture as it relates to his covenants for his people, how does God's faithfulness to his promises give you hope today in the midst of brokenness? It's there for you. It's available to you. There's power in it for us even to experience the good of today. As we turn our eyes from our circumstances, as we look to the one who is able, as we see that with God nothing is impossible, it informs our faith. It shores us up for the tests that we may face. I don't know what you're facing today. I know what some of you are facing. I don't know what everyone in this room is facing. Perhaps it's a test in your marriage. Perhaps it's a test in relationship. Perhaps it's a test as it relates to your work or your vocation. Perhaps it's a test as it's related to your finances. But what is ultimately being exposed is what is the source of joy in your life? And has that overtaken what you should be putting your faith in in your life? But we begin by looking backwards. Where has God been faithful to you? Where has he shown himself faithful what promises has he made to you and in the midst of whatever brokenness you may be walking through in this moment how does that inform how you should respond is it possible god's up to something that you don't yet see i'd posit today that it's probable that he's up to that and it's probable that he's not just working in you but he's working in others around you as well and isn't that the good of the community of the church gathered, not only in this gathering, but in community groups as we walk through these things together? Not asking these questions as an accusation, not trying to lob it out as if you seem to lack faith. What an unhelpful question, or what an unhelpful statement. It's unhelpful when we start, start off by questioning things that we're trying to actually build our lives on. 
But when we think about God's faithfulness to us, we realize there is a sure foundation for us to build on. Let's look over to chapter 22 together. We realize that there is a sacrifice required. Please bear with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slow down a little bit here. This is a story that can be difficult to wrap our head around. As a parent of two boys, we had our son Caleb's name picked out before we were married. And so when I read this story, I find myself not only in the place of a dad, but even just as, as, as a human being looking at this going, God, why this test? Why is this the way that you reveal something about Abraham's faith? Why is this the way that you've chosen to help us even today, help your people who were, who were wandering and, and learning about you through Moses writing and capturing this book of Genesis? Why is this what you needed to reveal about yourself? And I think we're going to see something quite amazing in just a moment. But I understand the questions as we get into this. I understand what it looks like these years later not to see this through the Sunday school way of thinking about Abraham hearing a call of God to sacrifice his own son. But there are truths about God's test that we should know, and I think that this helps inform that. If we think about some of the truths about God's test that we should know, we should realize this. God himself never tempts us to do what is evil. God's tests are designed for our good. God's tests are never contrary to His holy character revealed through His Word. God's, God loves us, and His tests are intended to reveal what's best for us. God loves us, and His tests are intended to reveal what is best for us. So with that in mind, let's read together. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he, that is God, said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of God that he had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey and, and the boy. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and both of them went together. And, I, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, my, my father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. I can't even imagine. 25 years is what Scripture helps us understand that Abraham had waited for Isaac. We're not given a specific timeline here. It, it's, it's most commonly understood that Isaac would have been around the age of 13 or 14 at this time in his life. He's clearly at a place of understanding what is needed in order to make an offering by the questions that he asks. Can we just notice a couple of things in this text? One, it's difficult. 
It's difficult to get past the emotion of it, but I think in the midst of us even humanly being able to understand that it's difficult to be able to get past the emotion of it, I think that this informs our faith in a very practical way. Our faith not only speaks to our actions in obedience to God, but it speaks to our emotions as the people of God. See, Abraham didn't give in to his emotion in this moment. Stepping out in faith meant that his emotions were informed by his faith. And that's a difficult point to kind of wrap our head around. But we were just singing about it when we said, I lay my life at the altar over and over again. What? From fear to faith, I surrender. God not only equips us to walk in his ways, he equips us to feel rightly. Our faith can inform our feelings rightly. Abraham models that for us. I can't even imagine what the times in between this text look like for Abraham. I believe that this is a real event This is not a made-up story to try to prop up Abraham. But it's difficult to read and to think about a God who would call for such a great sacrifice. But doesn't he call for that kind of sacrifice in our life? 25 years plus 38 years. Abraham walked through this. And then here's this call. Can we learn a few things? Just briefly, let's think about this. Abraham knew the voice of God because he was used to listening. Let's just acknowledge that. This doesn't just come out of nowhere. This comes from training. This comes from communion. This comes from time with your maker. This comes from time with now what we understand in the new covenant, your savior. Abraham. And how does he respond? Here I am. Here I am. How many of us would do well in life to respond, here I am, Lord? How many of us would do well to respond to that that subtle leaning of the Spirit that's saying, do this? And we keep thinking, that doesn't sound right. According to whom? Is God testing you in some way in that moment? Are you willing to listen? Are you willing to walk it out? I actually would look at this passage and I think, you know, there were other tests that were captured throughout the Old Testament. How about this one? Let's just think about this for just a second. If if I were to look over at Genesis chapter 14, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 14, and there was this moment of crossing the Red Sea, And the people of God have been released from Egypt. They've been released from slavery. And they're up against the Red Sea. And they're at this place where Moses is told to do something. He's told to stretch out his hand and that the waters will part. Okay, maybe. So that's pretty miraculous too. But I like listening to that more than somebody having to lay their son down and sacrifice him. That feels better to me today. It feels more palatable for me to understand who God is and, and what He's after in my own heart. But we can learn some things from Exodus chapter 14. Moses says to the people, Fear not, stand firm. This informs how we respond in faith as a people of God, it informs how I respond in faith when things don't go the way that I've planned. It, resp- it informs how I respond in faith when things don't look like the timeline that I dreamt up in, in addition to the promises of God. Fear not. Stand firm. And what does Moses do? He stretches out his arm and the waters part. The people of God are saved. They are spared. What if we were to turn over to Joshua? If we were to turn over to Joshua chapter 6, 
Obviously, Sun Tzu's The Art of War did not exist at this time because I'm not aware of a chapter in that book. It's been a while since I looked at it, but I'm not aware of a chapter in that book that the offensive strategy of war is to shout at the wall repeatedly. I'm not aware of that chapter. There are things that they talk about as strategies of war, and singing is not a part of it. Musicians at the front is not a part of it. But that's easier to understand. It's easier to look at that and go, well, that's cool. That's, like a, that's a battle. That's a victory. That's easier to read than someone trying to sacrifice their son. It's, it's more palatable for me. And yet again, we realize we're putting ourselves at the center of everything. When God says, that's the place that I want to occupy. And so what do they do? They obey. They walk around for six days. Can you imagine the troop meetings? What's our strategy? Well, we're going to march. Then what? Uh, We're going to do that again. Uh, How many days are we going to march? Seven days. Uh, Are we going a particular direction? Circles. (laughs) I, I don't understand. We are trusting in what God has told us to do. All right, well, when we lay siege, how's that going to happen? We're going to blow some trumpets and shout. Bows? No, not necessary. How how are we going to gain victory? God will provide. What if we look over at Judges and we think about Gideon's men It's actually said that there were so many that they could not number the camels that were with them. How many camels are there? We lost count. That many? Yeah. We don't need all of that. As a matter of fact, we're going to put out this test, and if you're afraid of what it is that God's calling us to do, turn back. And what do they do? They lose something like 22,000 men on the first cut. They go home. And then another test comes, and what happens? 10,000 reduces to 300, and what does the Lord do? He provides victory. And in the midst of that, Gideon is called to tell the people to do something very simple. He is called to tell the people to move on. In the NIV, that's actually the words that are used. Tell the people to move on. There's a sermon in that alone. How many of us in faith need to move on? But those are easier stories to look at when when we consider Genesis chapter 22. We want to kind of chalk it up to historical narrative. We want to be able to say, listen, I I don't understand what was going on here, so let's think about it from a historical standpoint. What were the, the communities like around there? Well, we know something was going on with this particular people group, and it was not uncommon for them to actually sacrifice their firstborn so that they could gain Attention and affections from the gods, one of the lowercase g gods that were there. We know this historically. We know this through archaeological fact that exists today. And maybe, maybe Moses is just kind of co-opting that story to talk about that. But I don't believe that's what's happening here. See, I think this story reads differently if we read it from God's perspective. The one who's revealing himself to Moses to be captured in these words for his people that he was leading at the time and for us today. If we read it from God's perspective, what do we see here? We see a father who loves his son. We begin to get a glimpse of God's heart for his own son, Jesus. We see a father who loves his son who will bear the wood on his back. We begin to get glimpses of the cross. And do you feel it? Like when you, when you read the story from that perspective, like I'm getting goosebumps now, and it's not because I'm a good preacher, it's because he's a good God, and he's revealing himself to his, through his word. So when we kind of, we don't check our emotion, we don't check our ability to understand, but God wants to reveal himself by saying, don't read this with yourself at the center of it. Read this with Jesus at the center of it. 
and realize I'm revealing something about my character. I'm revealing about the, the Savior that is going to be needed, the sacrifice that is going to be required. I am revealing salvation. I am telling the people that lambs are never going to be enough. But he's pointing to a Savior who will always be enough. That should inform our faith today. It should inform the way that we think about the faithfulness of God as we look back over our life. But more than that, practically for us today, it should beg the question of this. Are are there areas of our life, if, if this is how God is revealing himself, as one who dearly loves his son and sends him anyway, as one who three days, it's actually said in the text, three days. This area, uh, from, a ge- from a geographical standpoint, this area is where Christ would one day be crucified. It's understood that Moriah and the mountains that were there now are Jerusalem. God's revealing something very powerful about his salvation. He's laying foundations of promises that Moses, Abraham could never understand. And yet they respond in faith. Let's think about this too for Abraham just before we move on. Abraham wasn't just in the vicinity of obedience. He walked in it. You say, well, how do you get that? Starts off, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, what is, how does Abraham respond? Here I am. Then what does he do? He packs up and he goes to the region. God doesn't tell him everything about what's going to happen. He doesn't tell him, this is exactly where you're going to go. This is exactly how it's going to work out. He actually calls him to step out in faith. And so he goes to the region. He puts himself in the place of obedience. And then when God reveals to him there, that's the mountain I want you to go to, he walks in obedience. That three days, that four days that lapses in the midst of this story didn't convince him otherwise. So he doesn't just put himself in the place of obedience, he walks in it. Can I ask you the question this day? Showing up here to church this morning, was this the extent of walking in obedience that you've done this week? I don't ask this question out of condemnation. I ask it to wriggle us free from ourselves. This is putting yourself in the vicinity of obedience. Walking it out looks like the rest of the week together. It looks like living it out in your house, at your kitchen table, the car ride to and fro. It looks like living it out at your workplace where they don't understand you to be somebody different than you, who you are right now in front of us. It looks like in your marriage, in your relationships with others, that they are not the priority, that there is one who is informing those relationships and changing you in the midst of them. It looks different on your campus as you're one who gives yourself to work hard to, to learn and to study but you're not putting all of your hopes, you're not putting all of your career hopes and and eggs in that basket, so to speak. This is the vicinity of obedience. Are we walking in obedience as a church? Perhaps it helps to illustrate it this way. Perhaps not. So let's see together. You know, there have been some record-breaking deals in real estate here in Orlando recently. Uh, Shaq uh, rejected my bid for his lakefront property. Went with another bidder. It was a sad day. I figured finally a bed I'd, I'd not hang off the end of. <laughs> but alas, it's not mine. But imagine that someone came to you and wanted to give you a house for free. The biggest house in the area, the, 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 the one with the, the largest price tag. It's going to be another record-breaking deal except for this, that it's free. Its value is immense, but its cost to you is nothing. 
The house is fully furnished. It has everything you could ever possibly need or want. It even comes with those who are just going to wait on you hand and foot. No more yard work. No more cleaning. No more cooking. But imagine as as, as you kind of take that no-brainer move to like extend your hand to say, yes, please, and thank you, that the, that the owner kind of takes the keys in hand and he says, you know, there's just, one, there's just one condition. So, so the entire house belongs to you. But there's this one tiny closet that I, just, I need to have access to anytime. That, that's a weird request. But, but okay, we'll take it. I don't think most people would, would kind of bat an eye at that. I mean, look at the value of this. Look, look at what it's going to bless you with. So you take the house from the owner, you move in. One day, some months later, the, the owner comes to you needing to get to that closet. And so you, you open the door. And as he comes into your house, you notice well, he's dragging something behind him. It's the carcass of a dead deer. He takes that deer and he unlocks the closet and he nails it to the wall and then he locks the door and he turns around and leaves. Thankfully, you don't have to clean that up, right? But it's weird. It's weird that in this one room there's something of death and decay and you realize this because you start to smell it. It turns on you. The worms, the maggots, they, they overcome that closet door. You even become sick yourself just because of the presence of a dead deer in a, a small closet of a house that you've supposedly been given. But you feel like, you know, I don't own this anymore. This is not really mine Think of what we're reading here in the book of Genesis. See, Moses is writing to the nation of Israel. He is informing them how to have relationship with the God who is pursuing relationship with them. And yet they're holding back a closet from him. I'm going to give you everything except for this. And in this everything that I haven't given you, I'm going to fill it with death and decay. I'm holding something back. See, God's test of Abraham was to reveal that God ruled over all of him and that there were no competing interests hidden in the closet of Abraham's life. Can we ask the question of ourselves this morning, are there things hidden in the closets of our lives? that God wants the keys to? What do you have that you might find difficult to give up even if it were for Christ? What can you do to remind yourself that whatever that thing is, it belongs to the Lord? Is it where you're being tested currently? Is it in your relationships? Is it in your vocation? Is it in your finances? Is is it in something relationally with your children or your, your siblings or your parents or even your friends? And we ask this question lastly before we move on this morning. How does God's promise of salvation give you confidence in your obedience to the Lord even when you face potential loss? See, there's been a substitute provided. I don't want to leave us hanging here. I just want to, I want to introduce the tension a little bit that we actually walk through in life, don't we, when it comes to our faith? We actually walk through these things in very practical ways, don't we? When something all of a sudden takes a turn, when there's all of a sudden loss, when, when what we thought was going to be a career ends up being, I don't know, a layover. When you've been logged out of the email account because you no longer work for that company. When you realize you've been betrayed in your marriage. No, I'm not going to move on yet. <clears throat> we have the privilege, Stephanie and I, of, of um, doing premarital counseling. And don't worry if we're doing premarital counseling with you right now. You're not this illustration. 
it amazes me at times to hear the things that you'll hear the fears come out of as long as this doesn't happen, we'll be fine. I'm grateful to hear an honest acknowledgement of that because it allows us to speak truth to that to say, you'll be fine either way. But don't we live that way at times? As long as X, Y, or Z doesn't happen, we'll be fine. And then X, Y, or Z happens. And you're fine anyway. Maybe you're like me. I, I can't think of one of those moments right now in my life. I can't think of one of those things that I say, as long as this doesn't happen... But that doesn't mean that I don't have struggles when I'm tested, when my faith is tested. I still have those struggles. I'll be honest with you, I can kind of look at tests as a one-off, not a lifetime experience. Let me me put it in these terms. I, I can look at tests and I can say, God, help me learn whatever it is you're trying to teach me now so I never have to go through this again. And then what happens? I go through it again. What didn't I learn last time? A lot. Mainly that this is not the way that God works when my faith is being tested. It's not as if I learned the lesson and I can kind of check off that moral box and perhaps you're the same way because you realize I faced this test before. I thought I learned everything I was supposed to last time, and you realize God is continuing to mature you through those tests that you're facing. He is continuing to shape you into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. He is continuing to use those things to reveal Himself and to reveal His Son through you. That's the purpose of these tests. It's not to break us, it's to shape us. And God will have his full way. Okay, now we're going to move on. A substitute is provided. I don't want to leave us thinking about this story in a way that, that, that thinks about God. And hopefully we've, we've seen that enough that if we put ourselves in the midst of this where we're kind of standing as the accuser before God that just says, how could you be that way? Asking so much. Promising so much and then seeming to take it away in that moment. How could you do that? God reveals himself as a father who loves his son. He reveals himself as one who provides the substitute that we need. Because not only is that accusation against God a sinful response, our own sin doesn't allow us to enter his presence. Do you notice that there's almost this James 4 kind of thing happening here. James 4 says that if we draw near to God, that he will draw near to us. God calls Abraham's name and what what does Abraham say? He says, here I am. And when Isaac calls Abraham's name, he says, here I am, my son. There's there's an ability to draw near relationally. Why is that? Because a sacrifice and this substitute has been provided for us. Let's look at Genesis 22. 11 through 14 together. The angel of the Lord called from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Okay, here's a good time to know how to listen to the voice of the Lord. Train yourselves in that. Listening to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But the angel of the Lord calls to him and says, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. The angel says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said on this day, the mount of the Lord shall be provided. How should we respond to the grace of God in providing His Son as a sacrifice 
in our place for our sins. The one who would take on everything. Well, we should be eternally grateful. We should not only listen for our Father's voice, we should obey His commands with joy. We should praise and worship our triune God for the salvation He's accomplished for us. We should proclaim His goodness and His grace through Jesus Christ in the world so that others can believe and be saved as well. But can I be honest with you? Those, those proclamations oftentimes are reminders for our own hearts, aren't they? They're reminders for our own hearts of how God has been so good to us. They're reminders in our own hearts of what it is that God is truly up to. He is redeeming a people for himself. See, in the Old Testament, God graciously accepted an innocent, unblemished animal as a sacrifice to stand in the place of one who was guilty. That they would be the ones that take on this kind of ceremonial cleansing from wrongdoing. But this is all pointing to the final once-for-all substitution and atonement in Jesus Christ and His death on the cross on our behalf. I love what Joni Erickson Tata says. She said, real satisfaction comes not in understanding God's motives, but in understanding His character, in trusting His promises, in leaning on Him and resting in Him as the sovereign who knows what He is doing and does all things well. So let me ask you this today. What are ways that you regularly remind yourself about Jesus' sacrifice for sinners like you and for me? And how does Jesus' willingness to go to the cross on our behalf affect the way that you see sin in your life? I think it's appropriate to ask those questions just now as we prepare our hearts to go into communion. I believe that the ushers are going to be bringing elements around, which I hope is true, given that I could use some. See, God's call to Abraham to sacrifice his son is a reminder that there was payment needed for our salvation. In order for me to be saved from the wrath of God, in order for you to be saved from the wrath of God, God sent his son, Jesus Christ. See, there's no substitute for him. He alone could stand in that place. He alone could be the one who could die in our place. And and what does this do? Well, it helps to renew our minds as we understand that sin can't just be overlooked. It's not kind of swept under this cosmic rug. Thank you, sir. Sin requires payment. Our sin has eternal consequences, but they were placed on the eternal Son of God for everyone who would believe in Him. Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross in our place says that He alone is the one who can demand soul allegiance. He's the only one that can make that claim on our lives. He's the only one that can say, follow me. Why? Because I'm the way, the truth, and the life. See, the gospel is amazing because it's the good news that the debt of our sin has been paid in full through Jesus' death on the cross. Gospel is wonderful because it is good news. It's actually what the word gospel means. It's good news that's meant to be shared. The gospel is the greatest news ever told. It's the news. It should be part of every conversation we have that don't know Jesus. Because Jesus didn't just die for our sin. He died for the sin of the world. His blood is enough. And this informs how we live because if we believe that his substitution on our behalf is the greatest news ever told, we should share that news. And we should do that with joy and with urgency for those who don't yet know it. We're going to reflect in in just a few moments in silence before receiving communion. And and this is Reformation Day. And I want to give us some moments to reflect in silence before receiving together because in doing so, we realize that no matter what opposition we face, 
no matter the failings or manipulations of man, no matter the sin or deceit of the world, not even the dysfunction in or around our families, as we'll see more about next Sunday. The truth of the gospel is enough for us. Scripture alone reveals that Jesus Christ alone is the only way, truth, and life. As salvation is received by grace alone. It is a free gift by faith alone. This in turn empowers us through the Holy Spirit to live for the glory of God alone. You know, I was, I was thinking today, and, and there are times that it can be difficult to illustrate the concept of where does faith fit in the process. And I wonder if it's right here. It's in the in-between hearing and obeying. Hearing and obeying. See, faith is a gift. Faith is something that is freely offered to us through Jesus Christ. We simply receive by believing. It is a free gift. But it makes a claim on the rest of our life. And so we may hear today, and you may be hearing today, this sense of, I am one in need of that salvation. And before you make that public declaration of it, that would be the obedience part of it. What is happening right now? You are receiving the gift of faith that Jesus Christ is enough to provide that salvation for you. Perhaps you've already been in that place where you have heard the call of the Lord, where you heard Him say your name as if it were Him saying your name on the cross Himself. And now you're saying, how is it that I should live by faith? Well, I think that faith is what, becomes, is what comes between the promise and the faithfulness to receive it. It's, faith is what comes between the purpose and the fruitfulness that you want to see in your life. Faith is what comes between the calling and the realization of that. We are called as people of God to live by faith. So let's take a few moments, even now. We're going to stay seated. The band is going to lead us through a couple of choruses in the song, A Debtor to Mercy Alone. But let's take some time to examine our own hearts. Let's take some time to clear out any hidden rooms before our Savior. And let's take some time to receive faith as a gift, reminding us that Jesus' work on our behalf is finished, and it alone is enough for our salvation.